Welcome to Dad Rocks, a podcast for dads who love music, made by dads who love music. Hello and welcome to Dad Rocks, the podcast about being a dad and loving music and how the two intersect in our lives. I'm your host, Josh, and today my guest is Bobby Hackney. Bobby is the bassist and lead singer of the proto-punk band Death, who are the topic of the documentary A Band Called Death. He's also the bassist and lead singer of the Vermont reggae band Lamb's Bread, and recently wrote a book about his time as a Vermont reggae artist in the book Vermont Reggae Fest, The Power of Music. But most importantly, Bobby is the father of three sons, all of whom are in the band Rough Francis. Now, before we get to my conversation with Bobby, I wanted to let you know about a few things. First, producer Steve was scheduled to join us, but due to a last-second scheduling conflict with his job, he was unable to be part of the interview. I say this because I mentioned him near the end of the conversation. However, Steve was able to hop onto the Zoom call right before it ended, which was great for him because he had Bobby on one of our initial lists of potential guests, and he's been a big fan of death for a very long time. Speaking of Zoom, we encountered some audio issues on both of Bobby's tracks, both his local recording and his Zoom recording. So I had to stitch them together to make a usable track. You'll mainly hear the Zoom recording, but every once in a while you'll hear clips from his local recording. And I say this because there's definitely a difference between the sounds of both, and so if you hear that, you know, that's why that is happening. Uh, I apologize for these issues, but I think things came out pretty well overall. Now, with all that said, let's get to my conversation with Bobby Hackney. Bobby, welcome to Dad Rocks. Hey, it's nice to be here, man. How was your Thanksgiving? Uh, It was great. You know what? I spent it with all the boys, with the family. Uh, we went over to uh, Bobby Jr.'s house, and uh, we had a, just had a great time, and uh, just had, had just had a wonderful time. So it was, it was a very good Thanksgiving. Is uh, are they all in Vermont? Yes, they are. Nice. They are. They're all in Vermont, man. That's awesome. Now you have all your sons close to home. Yeah. Well, you know, a few of them, a couple of them left, but they came. They came. <laughs> they sprung back. You know, they realized how good they have it here. So you know. Yeah. They, I mean, they just came back. I know. I I left for a few years from my home, uh, found a job, went to grad school, and then came back to Jersey and lived like mm-hmm. you know close by to all my family. It's hard to leave family behind. Um, yeah. And so, uh, you know, Death and Rough Francis just released recently a split single, um, which is yep, both songs right are great. Right yep. Uh, and it, World in Disguise. It's the first, uh, I guess, single that Death has released in about eight years. Um, is it a yeah. new song okay. or was it? No, uh, you know what? This is actually a song that we, you see, because uh, we didn't get a lot of opportunities to play uh, live and locally back in Detroit. And that was because it was 1975 and we were the band Death. You know, everybody <laughs> was scared of our name, man. We couldn't get a book. So we basically sequestered ourselves into our um should I say a workout musical room? And we just wrote songs. We wrote songs consistently. I mean, I was in high school at the time and I wrote so many songs. David wrote so many songs. So we always said that, you know, if ever the world heard this music and we were still around, that we would try to make sure that some of this music got out. 
And uh, this is one of those songs from 1976 that uh, that I wrote called World in Disguise. I mean, these were all songs that we had discussed, that, uh, David, Dennis, and myself, that uh, hey, we wanted to do these songs. And we never got a chance to do them. And lo and behold, years later, here we are, you know, over oh, almost 40 years later, we get a chance to, to bring out some of this music. So it, it's a real um, honor to have this from the Death Archive, you know, and and uh, we've got plenty, plenty, plenty of songs that we that we wrote back in that time, um, and um, you know, right now we're getting a chance to uh, to 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 play some of those songs and to bring them out to the public. It's a wonderful thing. Yeah, was that last album in, from 2015 new or NEW? Was that also just all old songs, or were those uh, newer songs as well? It had a few songs on it from our archive. And it had a few songs that um, that we wrote with Bobby Duncan, that I wrote with Bobby Duncan, that we all wrote together. Um, so you know, yeah, that was kind of that's. I think that's one of the reason why we called it N. E. W. You know, because of the fact that some of the songs were brand new, but some of the songs were new to the public from our archive. And know? the other two albums um, that were released uh, after that first album, that was you know your your fully recorded first album that was all archival um recordings right from uh oh yeah those were the those were the original that was the raw deal man that the, for the whole world to see which basically has become our signature album well, i mean hey we admit it you know we're, it's our signature album mm -hmm. and uh, that was recorded at united sounds that's that's the way it was um and then we did uh spiritual mental physical which was kind of a uh, we got together with drag city on that because mm -hmm. uh it was a lot of tapes and outtakes and kind of raw stuff that we did in the garage and in the room. And, uh, you, you know, Drag City was interested in that. And it, it turned out to be a real nice album, you know, of raw, just kind of raw footage of death, you yeah. know. Yeah. And uh, then the third album, uh, Death 3, that's a combination, kind of like some, uh, some of the stuff we did in Detroit. Uh, before we left, and then there was uh, stuff that we did once we moved to uh, Burlington, Vermont. Mm. Uh, we got into a, a couple of studios here, and we did a lot of music here. And so that's kind of like a combination of from Detroit to, or you could call that from the Detroit to the Burlington mm. album uh, of death. You and, know? and that's before David moved back to Burlington. I mean, back to uh, Detroit, yeah. right? Yeah, back to Detroit, yeah. yes. This was around 81, 80. David left here 81, about the end of 81 into 82. Yeah. Now, are you and your son's band uh, planning on doing any more split singles or any more, you know, split recordings? Or is this, you know, for now, one off? Well, you know what? We're working on we're working on tracks in the uh, in the studio right now. Awesome. We're fortunate enough to have two recording studios available to us, one here in Jericho and Uriah has the box. But we're really doing a lot of work with Uriah because he's just... Um, uh, he's just become so incredibly awesome as a producer, uh, and I'm proud of him for that. And uh, it just makes me—I mean, it just makes me super proud, man, to be able to go into the studio and have him do stuff, you know. So yeah, we're working on some other deaf songs from the archive that we're pretty <laughs> excited for people to hear. Awesome. Did you ever envision that your three sons, Bobby Jr., Julian, and your Urian, would be doing what you and your brothers did? You know, I I envisioned I envisioned them as being musicians. Mm -hmm. uh, Bobby was really the first one that kind of started it all, but he was a drummer. And uh, Julian and Uriah came along later, but I it, I never thought that they would end up being a band 
akin to, uh, you know, me, Dennis, and David. Um, and uh, it, if you watch the movie, A Band Called Death, it really is kind of poignant because they were the ones out there when the, when the discovery was made. Mm -hmm. They were the ones out there performing the music. Yep before me and Dennis even kind of like put the whole thing together to go back out there again. So yeah, it is, it's, it's been, it's really, those guys have really amazed me. I mean, they really have amazed me. And uh, I'm not only amazed by the fact that they are together as a band, but th that they're, they are just such awesome musicians. And uh, that's the one thing that, that myself, Dennis and David would be thoroughly proud of. Yeah. Uh, you know, my brother's in uh, a group, an EDM group, an electronic, you know, he's basically doing DJing, but originally they were like an emo punk group with two brothers, and at one point they asked me, I, I've been playing drums for 30 years, and I'm not into any of the music that they've played. They were like, do you want to come on and maybe we can have two sets of brothers or something like that? As like, you know, I was like, I, I mean, I probably could work with my brother, but I, I you know, the, the tension of some of the, the siblings, you know, stuff I, I've seen in other bands, and you know, do, do they have I mean, obviously, you guys had some tension, especially, and we'll we'll, we'll touch on this later, especially when uh -huh. you were offered the record deal. But like, right. do the do your boys have any tension in their band that you see, or do they work pretty well together? They work really well together. They 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 really do. They work really well together. And I think that they know each other enough and have been around each other enough um, from childhood to now that yeah, they they really work together. I mean, I'm pretty sure in this. Every band has riffs and has certain mm -hmm. things that they, you know, but I haven't seen much, you know, I haven't seen much. And then, of course, you know, they'll probably keep anything. If they were having riffs with each other, they probably want to keep it away from mom and dad. Yeah. So, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know how I do. Yeah. Well, in that same vein, you know, it's it was great to see you, your brother and, and the family touch on how supportive your parents were of mm -hmm. your musical journey, you and your brother's musical journey. Um, right. Obviously, you said that you you were hoping that they would your sons would become musicians. So, was that something you were always trying to push them towards, um, or were you just like hoping that they would go there? And you've been just fully supportive ever since. Yeah, you know, I mean, no, we didn't really push them. Um, you know, I mean, me and my wife, you know, we always had the strong belief and the strong conviction that look, whatever they wanted to choose. Um, if it was in, if it was out of our realms of crazy, we would support. <laughs> but uh, what we did, we just made music available to them, man. You know, I mean, what we did is like, for instance, back in the days when we were playing reggae, we would practice and we would just, you know, we'd walk out the studio, walk out the practice room, just leave everything on, leave the amps on, leave the drums mm -hmm. on. And Bobby would come in and he would just, you know, tinker around with the stuff. And then it got to be Uriah. And uh, as they grew up, you know, and, and, and was, of course it was Julian who came along first, but after when Ryan came along, it, it just became a typical thing. We just leave the practice room open, leave the drums right in place, leave the amps on, and they would just come in and do their thing, you know? Mm -hmm. And at first it would just sound like a bunch of tinkering and a bunch of stuff. And then it started, you know, it started to sound a little bit better and a little bit better. And then it just became beautiful noise. And, and I knew but before, I would say before Uriah graduated uh, middle school, before Julian even graduated middle school, I knew that they were very, very talented. And, and we had, I had teachers and, and they, everybody in the community here thought that it was all because of us that I was driving them. But I was, no, I just, we just made it available. We just let them go. Mm. 
and uh, they love what they was doing. You know? Were they in bands uh, during their teen years? Like, were they playing oh, in the local man. music scene? Bobby was in so many bands. He was in so many bands. Then uh, Julian was in a few bands. Uh, but Urian um, just kind of, because I think him being the youngest of the three, he just kind of set the tone for, he just became this this animal nature of, of, of loving music and doing you know, not only he went, I think he went more deeper than just being a drummer. He went really into the technical aspect. I think he really embraced, he embraced, um, the what the fortunate thing about Uriah, I think that I saw that a lot of musicians, I remember when the first drum machine came out, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, there was drummers there who hated that. They was, they was against it. MIDI, when MIDI came out, you know, there was keyboard players and guitar players. They hated that stuff because they saw this as, you know, uh, in studios, especially that they, they were getting put out of work, you know, mm-hmm. but there was a few drummers like Stuart Copeland, um, like a few other drummers, man, who really embraced that technology and they took it to the next level with them. And Ryan is one of those musicians that he embraced all that technology and he's just, he just has fun with it like a kid at Christmas, man. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think that really is what, uh, Kind of made him a little bit stand out office of, uh, or or he stand he stood out a little bit more because he really embraced a whole lot of things and he's he's just really just got so much technical knowledge. Yeah. Um. And him being the youngest, so yeah, you know, I mean, he's they, they just go for it, man. Now the question, now you know, the question I have to ask, since you were you were playing when they were growing up, were you the dad that? took all their stuff around and, tra- and you know, were they asking you to take their stuff to gigs and everything like that? And, and <laughs> Every once in a while, I would help them out with some stuff, more or less with Bobby. He was the one that really started it. But by that time, he was like, Dad, give me the keys to the van, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so right, it was like, yeah, by the time he was driving, he was probably just asking for the van to, to you know, take all your stuff yeah. out and then just put all his stuff yeah. in. <laughs> Um, and then there would be sometimes I would come home and I would like, I would ask Tammy, I said, oh, I see there's drums in the van. That means Bobby's taking the van. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I mean, you know, it, was, it wasn't that much, but they really was more or less independently on their mm-hmm. own with a lot of their friends. Uh, Bobby played in, in such bands as Common Ground and he had a number of them. And he went on tour with, with uh, a, another friend of his, Drew, and they went, basically uh half they toured half the country you know and and at that young age it got him a lot of experience so um yeah you know i mean he they really was kind of on their own with that but every once in a while like i said i'd come home and i'd see the <laughs> see the van and you know i said he then bobby come walking in the room i said yeah i know i know you want to <laughs> use the van i'll see you you know so you know you grew up in a family of boys there were four of you right Four, four brothers. Well, there was four boys and three girls. Okay. Oh wow. So I so there was anyway having lots of boys growing up in your household and now having three of your own. Do you reflect back on how your parents raised you and your brothers while your sons were oh, growing definitely. up? Definitely, one hundred percent. I mean, you know, even as they was growing up, I mean, me and Tammy, I would, I would, I would say things to them, and I would say, and I would just stop for a minute and laugh and go, "Man, I sound just like my dad." <laughs> Oh, I sound just like my mom, you know, especially my mom, because my mom was the one who really raised us. You know, our dad, our dad, 
He died in 1968 mm. um, from a car crash. But um, my mom was such a strong-willed person. Um, and she was just, I mean, you know, determined to keep her family together and to keep us safe and to keep us strong. And she did such a wonderful job of that. And, and uh, we pay tribute to her every chance we get. Because without her, I, I, you know, you hear my brother say it. I mean, without her, there would have been no death. Yeah. Without her, there would have been, we wouldn't have been able to hang out in that room and play all that rock and roll music, get all that equipment and all that stuff. I mean, you know, no other parent on the street will put up with that. Yeah. You know, and then there was other parents on the street who were mad at her. (laughs) (laughs) Because of course we were, we were like erupting the neighborhood with rock and roll sounds. So yeah, that, you know, that made a difference. Yeah, man. I mean, I lost my father when I was 19 and, and, um, you know, my mom held it together and she's still like holding it together for my brother and I, and it's, it's, it's amazing, you know, when, you know, people are put in that position, but what parents do for their kids and make sure that they're, you know, really just there for them. Um, and yeah, I hope that your mother was like my mother was, you know, she got that extra strength and you're just like, where the heck did she get that from? You know? And, and it's like, you know, that's that's what happens sometimes, you know, when, when mom is left, when dad is gone, I, it was almost like my mom got this, this extra strength to really to really cope with a lot of things. And, and uh, you know, I mean, my dad left her in a good position to where financially she didn't have to struggle too yeah, much same. at the time in 1968, you know. Yeah. And so... Um, you know, we were able to to just have a, a a loving home, man, and we brought in a lot, a lot of music. You know, yeah, man. And that that made that made the house quite lively all the We just found out, I guess, via Instagram that you are putting a book out about the um, your reggae band Lamb's Bread and the Vermont reggae scene uh, in the yeah. early 80s, right? It's right here. Nice. This is it. This is it. Vermont reggae As a matter fest. Fact, I'm having a book signing tomorrow. And yeah, this is, uh, you know, this book is really about, um, it's, 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 it's about the Vermont reggae festival, the first five years in Burlington. I was the founder and the director for five years when it was in Burlington. And we had, it was just an amazing, incredible, incredible time. Um, Just an awesome time to be a musician and to be playing music in Vermont. Um, And uh, we were all growing up together. The band Fish, Mm. um, other uh, legends here, local legends like Big Joe Burrell and the Unknown Blues Band and the Samples and we all kind of grew up together, you know, playing the same clubs, hanging out with, with each other the same way. Mm-hmm. And uh, some of those friendships are still very strong to this very day. That's awesome. Now, w- how did, well, first off, like, how big was, was there a reggae scene or were you guys like one of the few reggae bands, you know, uh, in the area? And were you doing a lot of gigging, like, around vermont or just staying in burlington because i i'm curious you know because i assume 
you're well, you know, we what happened? Okay, you. I'm oh sorry. no, it's okay. Because I was just going to ask about oh. if you were touring, if um, like how that impacted your wife and your kids and stuff like that, or oh, if you were gigs. just doing local gigs. Yeah. Well, you know, the funny thing about it was is that Burlington. What we came in, we started out as death, and you have to mm-hmm. read the story to know that one. Yeah. And we started to change the name to the Fourth Movement. David moved back to Detroit. Me and Dennis was only here was bass and drums, and uh, we had a friend who was a local student. Well, actually, he was a student at UVM, but he did a, a radio show, popular radio show called Trenchtown Rock. Mm-hmm. And I happened to get hooked up with the radio station, and we became real good friends. And uh, he invited me and Dennis to go and see. Uh, he had brought Bob Marley to town. Oh, wow. And he brought Tosh. Oh, wow. And he brought Sly and Robbie and the Taxi Gang. Nice. And when we saw Sly and Robbie and the Taxi Gang, me and Dennis kind of looked at each other because we was all, we was, keep in mind, we were hoping that David would come back. So we didn't have a guitar player. We were just doing bass and drums. Mm-hmm. And we looked at each other and said, hey, man, this is a college town. These college kids love reggae music. <laughs> we, the only thing we have is bass and drums. Let's give this the world. And uh, the rest is history, man. We became, we started a band called Landsway. We became very popular very quickly uh, because the town was just ready to embrace reggae and having it its own reggae band became kind of a novelty amongst a lot of local people. Yeah. And that really kind of catapulted us. And, uh, but you were right. We could only play in Burlington. And a few places outside of Burlington where, like, colleges who only heard reggae. Mm. It was only amongst the college students. So that's what inspired me to kind of start the Reggae Fest, to kind of bring it to the public, you know, maybe a a, a free free concert just to, uh, you know, it was really just going to be a proto-test, you know, like a free concert just to see who who likes reggae and who would come out. And, man, I'll tell you, it it, it, it grew to just um, uh, epic proportions. Awesome. I mean, we started out in 1986 with only 500 people, 500 to about maybe 900. That's still a lot of people. Of <laughs> yeah, well, and that was the that was the the, the beginning, and uh, it just grew until in 1990. The last time that I was involved as the director and the founder, uh, because Lambert had gotten so popular, I wanted to go touring. And uh, that was 1990, and we drew 40,000 people oh, wow. into North Beach in 1990. That's crazy. And so did you guys end up touring after that, or did you just stay Oh, local? we toured all over the place. I mean, because by then, see, every the, the, the great thing about it with Lansbury is that everybody around the region knew that they loved the Reggae Fest, and the Reggae Fest was the big buzz, and they knew that the, the director was this guy who was in this band, Lansbury. So when we come to town, we would do sell-out shows, and people would come. And we, yeah, I mean, it would be packed, and people knew about the band. Everybody was excited about the reggae festival. It was got to the point to where everywhere we went to play a show, people was like, hey, when's the, when's the reggae festival to be? When's the reggae festival to be? You know, I, we got used to hearing that, you know? Nice. And it was, it was a beautiful time. And so was this your primary uh, gig? Like, was this your primary job or did you, was this your, you know, your side hustler? You know, you know like all musicians, you, we all have to have a side hustle at that time. Yeah. But yeah, for the most part, me and Dennis, this was our primary gig. Yeah. I mean, was playing in the reggae band Lambswear because yeah. there were so many colleges. The great thing about it being here in New England, there were oh, so many tons. colleges. It's what we have, if you name any college in, um, New England, Lance Red has probably played it. <laughs> you know? I mean, we we even got the claim to fame that hey, we 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 even played Yale when George Bush was going oh, there. Oh wow. Yeah. 
<laughs> so did your did your did your boys come with you at all uh, on any of the on the gigs? Um, or not on a lot of the gigs. Some of the gigs, like some of the gigs, Boston. Some of the gigs we would take them on. But for the most part, they really um, at the reggae festivals. I mean, dude, it was like they just, you know, everybody. I mean, everybody knew the Hackley family by the end. They, <laughs> they did whatever they wanted to do, and they, I mean, all kinds of, you know, entertainers that would come to town, and and they would be backstage, and of course, you know, you know, entertainers always gravitate to the young kids, you mm-hmm. know. So uh, you know, yeah, they they got a lot of education. A lot of education. I mean, on the front of the stage and behind the stage as well. Now the question remains: Do they still enjoy reggae, or did they kind of have a, um, you know, as they were going through their older teenage years, kind of like push back on it? Well, you know, it's a funny <laughs> thing that happened along that way because Bobby was had gotten to the skateboard culture, mm. and of course, him being the oldest, passed it right along to Julian and Uriah. And I don't know what it is about it, but when, when the older gets into something, you pass it along to the younger. The youngers do it with a more of a passion. Mm-hmm. And so Julian and Uriah, but especially Uriah, Uriah got into the skateboard, um, you know, uh, culture and just took off with it um, in his whole life. But Bobby was the one that introduced the whole family to the music of the skateboard culture. And the one thing that he connected with me on, because he knew I played reggae, was that he turned me on to the Bad Brain, yeah. who was doing reggae and punk, punk yeah. music at the same time. And and so he said, Dad, you love these guys. You love these guys. They do reggae, you know? <laughs> and I found them very intriguing. But And then it was like, um, when I heard some of their faster stuff, I told Bobby, it was it was two, two bands that Bobby turned us on to. Was, was Bad Brains and the Gorilla Biscuits. Hmm. I don't know if you ever heard of them. No, I've never heard of them. But uh, And uh, I had told Bobby when I listened to their, their music, I said, you know, this kind of sounds like some of the stuff that me and your uncles was doing back in Detroit. You know, and, But he still never had heard the deaf <laughs> stuff. We only just heard it vaguely. We just talk about it vaguely. So, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, he, he no, they love reggae music to this very day. As a matter of fact, you Ryan, even did a show. He opened up for Ziggy months ago, and he just did a sound system thing, and nice. the audience loved it. That's awesome, you know. So I mean, yeah, they the, the the reggae culture is still very very deep within the Hackney family. Yeah. Now, to go back to death, you know, in the documentary, it really focuses on the brotherhood dynamic between you, uh, David and Dennis. Um, Can you speak more on how that brotherhood, that that bond lent itself to creating a band and, you know, who was first to pick up an instrument and how did that all kind of, you know, Mm -hmm. cascade into death? Yeah. Well, you know, right around the early 60s, I would say between 66, 67, um, you know, that was, we got our first guitar. My, my mom bought me a guitar for Christmas. Hmm. I'll never forget that one. It was a, it was a, it was a, a, a 
it tried to look almost like BB King, like Lucille, but it was a, it was a, a green and red. It was a Tysco, Tisco, whatever. I can't even pronounce <laughs> the name of the thing. It was so cheap. But we thought the world of it, right? Yeah. And so, you know, but uh, what happened was is that I was going to school and, you know, David, you know, he was kind of a free spirit, shall we say, mm-hmm. being 16, 17 at the time. And every time I come home, my guitar would be gone. <laughs> because it was, it, David had it somewhere, you know. And at first I protested, I protested, I protested to my mom. I'm like, look, what's he, he you know, this, uh, this is my, my guitar, my guitar. You know how siblings are. And then one day, um, and this is the real truth, one day I saw David in the corner playing the guitar and uh, it sounded so incredibly good. And he had really been working on that thing and I just let him alone. Mm. I just said, okay, hey, you know, just just, just, just play it, man. And I mean, maybe I'll get a chance to play it every once in a while, but you know, we just I just let him go. And then, you know, David, David being the mischievous guy that he was, he took it to the pawn shop, man, and he pawned it. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, he had been like that throughout his whole career. I mean, David was just so talented. But, you know, guitars would just come and go, would just come and go. And so, you know, I mean, yeah, he became the guitar player. And uh, even though I had, even and I acquired even another guitar, but, you know, I was like, okay, well, who, what am I going to play? You know, and, and Dennis was, uh, him and Dennis was working out on the, on the little, um, Dennis didn't have a drum set at the time. He took my mother's uh, garbage can that looked like a drum, turned it over, put two butter knives on it and sounded like a snare. And him and David were working out, you know, were playing whatever they, they were playing. And, and I'm like, okay, where's my part at? <laughs> and, you know, of course, we need a bass player. You can need a bass player. And so, um you know, it was funny because when, when we found where David pawned the guitar and my mom went in to, to, to rebuy the guitar, but the pawn shop dealer wanted, you know, more money for right. it than we would pay it back. And then I saw the bass and, uh, wow, you know, how much is this? One? Let's get this one. And uh, it turned out to be a good deal. And uh, that was my first bass, man. And I fell in love with the bass. Man. A little serendipitous you know? there, right? A little, a little uh... Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but also I knew because David wasn't interested in it, so yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> it would stick around for a while at least to be there when I came home from right. school. <laughs> <laughs> now, you guys growing up in Detroit, you know, you were at the heart. You were growing up in the heart of Motown, the the R and B soul scene of the the mid to late '60s. You know, but obviously you ended up playing some really hard and uh, you know fast rock that was uh, you know coming out in that Detroit scene, but I'm, I'm assuming you were outliers in your community, but what uh, brought you to rock and roll? What spoke to you about that music? And like, how did you guys decide this is what we're going to do? Well, you know, most people, when they talk about Detroit, they talk about Motown, but you have to understand uh, Detroit, which is Motown, right. had an incredible rock culture. Oh, yeah. MC5, um, Stooges, all yeah, that stuff. Exactly. Mitch Ryder. And, you know, we used to go to the Detroit Auto Show at the Cobo Hall, which was right at the end of Jefferson Avenue. And my mom would take us to the auto show every year. And Bob Seeger at the time, I mean, oh. dude, you're talking about this was 65, 66. You know, Bob Seeger at the time was one of the most popular local bands mm. 
he would always be at the Detroit Auto Show. And then one time we got to see the Rationals. Uh, they always had the good rock bands, hmm. you know, Mitch right. Ryder and Detroit Wheels. Mm -hmm. And then we kind of like these bands. And I think what the Rationals is one of the bands that really got us started into looking at the rock bands. They, I was one of David's favorite bands was the Rationals. And from the Rationals, when we would kind of tune in to every time that they were playing, mm -hmm. uh, of course, you saw these great rock shows. And then you, you know, there was this one guy that did this uh, show across the water in Windsor called, um, and it would broadcast in Detroit. It was called Robin Seymour Swinging Time. Mm. And he would have rock bands, soul bands, all kind of variety on the show. And that's where we first saw the MC5. That's where we first saw um, Iggy, mm -hmm. Iggy and the Stooges. That's where we first saw, and, and it was like, I mean, the rock and roll in Detroit was just incredible. Absolutely. And then in the midst of that, along came Grand Funk Railroad. Yeah. And Grand Funk Railroad just blew everybody away. Grand Funk Railroad became, I mean, that was Dennis's favorite, favorite band. I mean, Don Brewer on the drums. Yeah, man. Just, Great I power mean, trio. Oh, my goodness. That's, they are the ones that influence death the most. They influence us the most to want to play rock and roll, Grand Funk Railroad. Yeah, that early those early albums are just awesome. And they're power they're you, awesome, you, know, yeah. you know, people forget how hard rock they were in in you know when they started and how just yeah. some, some great tunes, man. And uh, you wanna you want a class you want a crash course on some of the best Detroit rock and roll and rock and roll that you'll hear, period. I would recommend to anybody Grand Funk Live. Yeah, man. The double album set, man. Tune into that. I, I guarantee you. You just listen to it from the beginning to the end. Some of the best rock and roll you ever want to hear. Yeah. And of course, Alice Cooper. Yeah. Uh, when Alice Cooper came from Arizona and moved to Detroit. And then you had um, The Who, who took up residence at the Granby Ballroom oh, really? for about a couple of months. And the Rolling Stones came. And, and that was another good thing about Detroit Rock is that when those two bands embraced Detroit the way they did, and they said that Detroit was their favorite places to play, the Rolling Stones and the Who. Then, uh, I mean, of course, that just, you know. Yeah. I mean, man, Detroit was like, to us, Detroit was Rock City. Yeah, man. We loved Motown. We loved everything Motown did. But as far as we were concerned, us three brothers, Detroit was Rock City. I mean, Motown had a couple of, you know, hard rock stuff. Rare Earth was pretty, you know, Oh, rocking. yeah. Rare Earth. And, um, oh, I mean, yeah, I mean, that was another one of Dennis's favorite bands. We heard the Rare Earth. I think that's what got turned on to the Rare Earth is that when they did um, Get Ready and it was the oh, yeah. whole album style. Yeah. You know? I mean, we used to, it, we, that's how we used to judge bad bands back then. If you could do a whole album side with one song, man, you, you, you were smoking. Yeah, man. And the people loved it, you know? Yeah. Now, you guys started recording um, eventually in the early 70s, right? And in yeah. the first... Uh, I guess Rock Rockfire Funk Express. That's that was uh, first recorded in seventy three, I think. Right, seventy one. Seventy one. Okay, seventy one. Nineteen seventy one. And yeah. so was that. Yeah, that was that. Like, did you guys fund that yourself? And that was just like, let's go do this and see if. Uh, no, we had. You know what? We had a manager. We had a we had a manager at the time. We tried doing a manager, and I mean, this was a guy who kind. Of, 
he was just hopping around around uh, Detroit, you know, looking for bands or looking for anything, that, you know. And he, you know, we he, we did an audition, and uh, we invited him over to our house, and he liked us, and he got us this one gig at this hotel, and it wasn't too bad. I mean, it was about maybe two or three people showed up, which is okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the one thing he did do was he turned us on to United Sound. Hmm. We knew that United South was the best recording studio in Detroit. And for us to just go in there, I mean, we were so green, man. We were so, I mean, you can listen, listen to the record and tell we were just, just really getting started. Yeah. But the uh, experience of recording that track at United South changed our lives. That changed our whole musical life. Um, when we walked out of that studio, David said, that's all I ever want to do, man. I just want to be in the studio for the rest of my life. I just wanted to be in the studio. He just loved it. Did you start hearing like music differently after that first recording session? Like, did you start thinking about arrangements differently um, and how oh, you yeah. want them to yeah. sound? Yeah, because the one thing about it is we didn't have um, enough time to sweeten up the, the, the tracks. Hmm. So when we heard the track, we were like, oh, man. And, you know, David was like, man, I could have put a solo right here. <laughs> We could do this right here. We could do that right here. So yeah, we started looking at music a lot differently than just when we were jamming in the room, you know. Yeah. And recording it on a little cassette tape, you know. We we uh, we started looking at things a little differently. Yeah. Now the the seven inch, uh, you know, the, the single "Politicians in My Eyes" that you guys, uh, you know, had out, and then was is on that first Death record. Um, mm -hmm. You know, that obviously it's a political song. Um, came out, you know, after 68, but was 68 and the whole MC5, you know, vibe um, from that time, did that have a big influence on writing that song? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it did, man. It had a, that had a big, the whole, I would say between 67 and 68, in the 66, 67, 68, I mean, if you were in the music and you listen to music, it had an impact on everybody. I mean, you had the Monterey Pop Festival mm -hmm. uh, with Jimi Hendrix and Otis Redding. Then you had Woodstock the next year right. in 68. Um, and the whole musical movement, Sly and the Family Stone oh, yeah. came out. That just just blew everybody's mind. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, it affected all of us. That, that really affected us greatly. And, of course, you know, in, in the middle of all that was the Vietnam War. Right. Um was Johnson and Nixon and, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that all the uh, Kent State, um, Bob Dylan, the protest songs, I mean, in the middle of all that, it affected all of us. I mean, we really believed, I mean, we really believed, we believed what John Lennon said. We believed what the Beatles said. Mm -hmm. Give peace a chance. Yeah. All you need is love. When Marvin Gaye came out with uh, What's Going On, that changed the whole trajectory of Motown. Yeah, man. And that just that just blew everybody's mind. Uh, and and everybody wanted to talk about, hey, how are we going to live together as 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 human beings? How are we going to succeed? How are we going to going to go into the next generation? Are we just going to kill each other and hate each other, or, or are we going to really love each other? Yeah, you know and. Uh, so, I mean, really, if you look back on that generation, most of the people you talk to are that generation, that was, we all had that hope that with the power of music and with the power of the people, you 
know, you remember that power to the people, yeah. power to that's what we all said yeah. back then, power to the people. We really believe that uh, we could change the world. Yeah. Um, and I think to a certain extent we did. Uh, but, you know, now it's, it's, it's funny, you know, I mean, you, you go full circle to get back to the circle again. Because here we are in this day and age, you know, we, and, and all those same songs are saying the same things to us. And we're at that point now to where, you know, even the younger generation is saying, hey, you know, what these guys were saying was really right. Yeah. What this, you know, what they, what they were, were, were projecting was really right. So it makes us feel proud. Julian said to me one time, uh, he said, Dad, you know, some of the best music in the world came from your generation. When, oh, definitely. You know, and uh, I'll never forget when Julian was 12 years old. You know, he came to me. This is one of the funniest stories. He came to me with Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits album. And he said, Dad, you ever, you ever heard of this? <laughs> and I just laughed. I said, I haven't heard of this. I said, this is only the soundtrack of my life. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, it, I was so proud of him. The fact that, I mean, that was a wonderful day. because I'm, And I, I even told Tam, I said, he's listening to Dylan. He's listening to Dylan. That just, that just. Man, that just warmed my heart so much that I knew. I says, yeah, man. I said, our kids are going to, they're on the way. They're getting it. They're yeah. getting it. I, I mean, I remember I was, what, three or four when I just came across a Beatles album. And it's Sgt. Pepper, so you have this, you know, this beautiful cover. And I, I asked my dad to, like, put it on. And immediately I got hooked. And then he went crazy finding all these albums, making tapes for me so I could listen to it. And it kind of just re-energized him, you know, into, like, yeah. getting us into music yeah. and, and everything like That's that. It. It re-energizes us parents in that aspect because we want our younger generation, we want the generation to realize what those songs said, what they meant, and the lives that were laid down. The, you know, it's ironic, one of the most popular bands was called Blood, Sweat, and Tears oh, yeah. at that time. But that's really, when you think about the 60s, when you think about Kent State, when you think about the Chicago Seven, when you think about the March on Washington, there are people who are literally laid their lives down, blood, sweat, and tears to get the message of peace and love and togetherness out to the people. Yeah. And I'm to, to this very day, I'm still proud of all of those artists. And I listen to all that music and, you know, and it, it just makes it gives me a good feeling. The number one music game is when the king of fame is like a race at the top because they want to be With the whole, you know, the, the documentary covers this a lot, and it's a kind of like an inflection point with with the band. The name Death. You guys met with Clive Davis, or you know, were offered by him, and and a lot of other record labels ended up turning you down because of the name. And Clive Davis said, "Hey, can you change this? I love your music. Can you change the name, though? Do you think that the name itself was uh, looked down upon?" more um, because of just the fact it was called death in general or because it was three black guys, you know, in a band called death. And, you know, if it was maybe funk or soul or a different, you know, type of vibe, it might've been a little different. Well, we could really say 
that it was race, but it wasn't race. Mm. Because the great thing about it is, is that we had pioneers before us, right. like Jimmy Hendrix, like the Chambers brothers. Yep. Like, you know, so it wasn't really like they, it wasn't a racial thing, but the name, oh man, the name was, I mean, it transcended race. It transcended um, thought. <laughs> it, I mean, yeah. when this jockeys heard the, uh, the name, I remember one disc jockey in Detroit told us that because David took it directly. He said, how am I going to say this name over the air? He says, I, I like the music, man. I like because it was keep on knocking. Yeah. And he loved the song, but he said, how am I going to say this name over the air? And they would just never play us, man. You know, something because they didn't want to say, and that's keep on knocking by death. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, even with even with the punk movement of the the late seventies, you guys couldn't get any traction with anything, or was it still the still that that antiquated, you know, well, feeling? Well, you no. Know, by the late seventies, we left Detroit in nineteen seventy six. Mm. But by the late seventies, when the whole punk movement like when the Clash and the Sex Pistols, when them guys started to hit in, in, in the late 70s into the 80s, we had kind of, um, I don't know, I, I, I like to say, I don't like to say we moved on from death because we always loved it, but we just got so frustrated because we couldn't get anything with the name, yeah. even in Burlington. I mean, really? David tried, David posted the town. Um, he said, I'm going to introduce the town to death. And he made posters, <laughs> right. posters all over the town. And then we got a knock on the door, yeah. and it was a cop with all of our posters balled up in his hand. I'm going listen, we don't do gangs around here. Mm. <laughs> and he's like, dude, we're, we're a rock and roll band. Yeah. And, he, and then what he told us is, well, you might want to change that name. Yeah. I mean, it's still kind of unfathomable that you guys, you know, during that scene, especially being right there at UVM, didn't even get like any any play on like college radio or anything. And um... no, man, it was it was it, the name Death. It was a shocker to people right on up until, uh, uh, and uh, then you know it was kind of funny because in the middle in the middle of the eighties, you know, we started hearing about bands with the name Death in it. Yeah, you know, metal Death bands and that, stuff. Yeah, yeah, Death Metal became big. And we, me and Dennis, would look at each other every once in a while. And you see, you see, man, you see. <laughs> I mean, all this we went through, and now you know, now people are a death metal band, and they're like, they, they they're doing stadium gigs, you know. <laughs> they hey, listen, they called the Beatles music devil's music. Yeah, yeah. think about that one. Yeah. It's it's tough to I think it's tough for my generation. You know, I'm 40, so I'm, I think I'm a little older than your your sons are around the same age. You know. It's hard to think of, you know, a time when uh, things were not accepted. It's just like you, you forget how, you know, antiquated the thinking was and how parochial some of the thinking was. Right. And exactly. growing up in such an, you know, there's still some pockets, obviously, that aren't as welcoming. But, like, to not mm. think of the name Death, like, okay, that's just the name yeah. of a band. Like, you know, oh, yeah. you, you, had a, yeah. you had a band called the Sex Pistols out there, and you're not going to play Death, you're going to play the Sex Pistols? Yeah. I mean, even though they probably... Yeah. You know, didn't get the same thing, but like, right. it's just it's it's crazy. But looking, but looking back, you know, seeing how everything has turned out in your life, you know, do you still regret not pushing David to change the name? You know, to getting signed with you know Clive Davis or who who you know whoever. We always thought about it every once in a while when we would have conversations about it. We always thought about it, but now after what is all has transpired, if you ask me. If to go back and do it again, would I uh, 
probably would have. Me and Dennis probably would have <laughs> been sticking them to change the name, but we're so very glad yeah. that he stuck to his guns, man. We're so very glad that he had the resolve. And he just kept telling us. He just kept telling us over and over again. He says, the world is going to accept this band one day. The world's going to come looking for our music one day. Yeah. And the world will appreciate the band then. And uh, that's one of the things probably that stings us the most is that he is not around. At least we think he's not around. Yeah. We do feel him spiritually. Oh, of course. Um, that to see this this thing happen, you know, that yeah. he was right. He yeah. was 100% right. So on, on that note, I would say no, man. I'm, I don't have no regrets that uh, David didn't change the name. And I, as a matter of fact, I am glad that he didn't change the name because it's proof positive that if you stick to your resolve, you stick to your belief, and if you know in your heart and your gut tells you you're right, you stick with that. Yeah. And David, David did that. I mean, you got a beautiful family. You got three great sons. You got, you know, they're playing music. You're back playing music with them. Who knows what would have happened if you had changed the name? And and you exactly, know, you know. exactly, it would have been a whole different, a whole different story. And then we, we end up hating Clive Davis like a lot of the other artists do. That. <laughs> <laughs> um, how surprised were you uh, that when you got the call, or you know, when was the call that you got to do the documentary on on when, death? When uh, after the death discovery, um, these two cats called us up, and uh, they were interested. I mean, one of them, Jeff Holland, he had, I had known Jeff because he was in a punk band um, along with the time that Bobby was doing his thing mm. with his band. And uh, so he knew about the family a little bit. He, and and he knew about the whole reggae thing. And uh, he had become a filmmaker and he said, hey, you know, how would you guys like to, we, we thought we just wanted to do a video mm. until we saw the first passes. Uh, of the test that he showed us. And we said, hey, man, this looks like some serious stuff. And um, that's how we got in, you know, and that's that's when we got the call. But about a couple of, I would say, about hmm, the death discovery, we, it would happen in 2008. And I would say between 2009, by, right around 9, 10, um, that's when we started to embark on the whole movie, the mm -hmm. documentary. And were you so by that time were your sons already playing? Have they already just re discovered your music, and were, oh, were yeah. they playing it? Yes. Yeah, so, okay. So it was all they were playing all. Yeah, they were playing it all over the place. They were they were just really they were our ambassadors. Hmm. They were our ambassadors. As a matter of fact, they made the the public want to see the originals. Yeah, which was me and Dennis, and so we had to do something. And fortunately, we was working with a guitar player. Uh, Bobby Duncan, mm -hmm. who really had come to visit, well, he, he had uh, come here uh, from New York City, and he relocated, and he was only living down the road from us, and we would see each other all the time, and we finally got together, but we didn't hook up because of death, we hooked up because of, uh, of uh, Lambsbury. Mm. We made him the guitar player for Lambsbury, and when, when the discovery came, we just was like, wow. Bobby's an awesome guitar player, but I don't really don't know if he can, knows how to play rock or, or lights rock and roll. Or, and he did some riffs for us one time before we even asked him. 
I remember that he came to a practice one day. And this, this is so, so spiritual because we didn't add, he didn't know anything about the death thing yet. We didn't tell him. Hmm. And he just started playing a long train running for the Doom <laughs> Brothers. And the way he played those chords, me and Dennis looked at each other and says, yeah, yeah, we got to, we got to ask him. We got to ask him. And uh, we, I just gave him down with the CD and I told him, I said, Bobby, I don't know how to tell you this. I don't even know where to, where to begin. And then he took the music home, man, and he just called me. He came back and says, Bobby, this is amazing. And he says, oh, man, I'm, he says, I'm totally in. Yeah. And, and that's, that's, you know, that was the whole beginning of it. Yeah. And so when you were restarting Death, was this during the production of the documentary or was this, um, you know, before you guys got that call? Oh, no. Well, this was before we, um, after we got the call, about the music being discovered. Yeah, we, we got on it right away, you know, me and Dennis, and, and we were working with Bobby at the time. So we were working, um, we were developing, like we were rehearsing the songs, trying to relearn the songs. We familiarized ourselves with the songs. And, mm. and uh, this was right around the time that Jeff had, uh, it was almost like the two roads met, you know, because as we were developing, then he comes along, and, and so we were able to do a lot of that while we were developing. And uh, the very first show uh, that we did was in Detroit. And uh, well, really, the very first show that we actually did was uh, Mickey Lee from uh, the Ramones, mm. uh, brother of the Ramones. He invited us to the Urban Plaza. Yeah, that's right for the for Joe Ramones' birthday crash. Yeah, yeah, yes. And that was the very first time that we had come out and played as death. And ironically, Julian, Urian, and uh, Bobby, they were on that show too as Ron Francis, and they all came out and joined us on stage. Nice. And uh, it was an amazing show. So, I mean, that was really the first one. But when we took it to Detroit, that was the real first official mm. death gig. Yeah. And uh, that's where the documentary, that's where they came with all the cameras and the crew and they filmed that and you see you can see that that it's in the it's in the movie yeah and so you know how did it feel to be on tour like as death like doing a national tour um when you guys you know decided to do that oh man it, it was surreal for me and dennis it was surreal i mean it's almost like you know 2008 to about 2012 was a total blur blur to us because all these things were happening that we were like, we would just look at each other and say, man, is this really happening? And we would just pinch each other sometimes, make sure that we wasn't just having a dream, you know? And uh, so we we were, uh, it was just surreal. Yeah. Us. Now, you know, look looking back at your journey, this incredible roller coaster of a journey, um, you know, your music career, if you could go back and say anything to your young your young adult self or your teen self as you you guys are you know trying to get death going what would you say to him i would tell them to take more pictures at united sounds when we was recording there um, <laughs> i would uh i would tell him to don't worry about what people think about your name just go out and keep playing try to play some gigs try to get some gigs try to get more 
that's probably the thing I would say. Other than that, I wouldn't do nothing different, man. Mm. I just want to let you know, so our producer, Steve, he's still working his gig, but he texted me. He wanted me to let you guys know or let you know that um, a, a buddy of ours who used to do the show with us, uh, Joe DeAngelis, he's um, one of the digital DJs uh, for a local uh, freeform radio here, uh, WFMU uh, in, in Jersey okay. City, New Jersey. And Steve just told me that both he and another one of their DJs uh, called Susie Hot Rod has been spinning uh, your your latest single uh, on their shows. Um, so, oh, tell them we said thank you so much. Yeah, and we hope that they enjoy it. Tell them there's definitely more to come. Oh, that's awesome, man. Um, but before I let you go, um, at the end of every show, you know, we like to ask our guests. Um, what they've been listening to three bands three artists whether they're new or old what what have you been listening to lately um, that maybe you know other, you want others to go check out besides your music of course uh, <laughs> wow um, there's been so many um, I would just say uh, oh my goodness man uh, don't worry been... this is usually a stumper for everyone they're not ready for this stumper for everyone yeah because <laughs> I would just say there's been a lot of new rock bands that I've been turned on to. Um, you know, I'm 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 still listening to a lot of the Clash. I'm still listening to a lot of Nirvana. Mm -hmm. I'm still listening to a lot of the Who. I'm still listening to you know, but some of the newer artists today. Um, uh, oh my goodness! Of course, you know I've I've liked some of the stuff that U2 was doing. Um, before they became totally, totally commercial. Yeah. Um, I like, um, uh, I was grooving on this band called Kings of Leon for oh, yeah, a while. Yeah. yeah. Um, we were grooving, uh, you know, that was one of Dennis's favorite bands too, you know, Kings of Leon that we discovered. A wife and naked in the night and looking for some play. Just another girl that wants to rule the world at any time or place. And when she gets into your head, you know she's there to stay. You want it, she's got it. Molly Tangle's gonna change her mind. She's got you. We've been checking out uh, some of our old buddies, Jello Biafra. You know, I mean, we we met so many wonderful entertainers along the way, you know, and uh, yeah, I'm listening to some of Iggy's new stuff. Whoa. 
and uh, you know, and of course the Rolling Stones have a new album yeah, called man. Hackney Diamonds, yeah. which we thought was just a wonderful coincidence. We would love to get <laughs> on. We would love to get on the show or, or, or on one of their. They they got a tour coming up called Hackney Tour. Now come on, man, you gotta have that. You gotta get the word out. You gotta get the word you out. You gotta call AARP to see if you get on that. That the, yeah, the, you see what I'm saying. I don't care. We don't care. We don't care. But it was, that's a that's another thing. I mean, that we you know listen to a lot of, and um, so I mean, uh, yeah, we 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 listen to everything. We try to listen to everything that we can, especially when it comes to rock and roll. Yeah. And what rock and roll was doing today, you know, um, and I think that the kids are just a little bit more conscious and a little bit more, you know, what they what the, the words that they say mean a little more, mm. and they they mean what they say today. That's what I'm saying. Rock bands today. The, the the kids that are putting out the music today they really mean what they say yeah and we're loving a lot of it now of course i have to say I, i'm a little biased about a band called rough yeah. too. Like, oh they're great man they're, they're great. on the rotation on my ipod for sure <laughs> So I, I, a question I forgot to ask earlier, but you, you kind of uh, triggered it in my brain, and then I'll let you go, um, is how influential were your kids on you for listening to music as they were growing up? Like, what kind of bands were they turning you on to? Obviously, Kings of Leon, you said, but were they turning you on to a lot of stuff you know that you would never have thought to listen to? Oh, before? like I said, Bobby was, I would say Bobby was the catalyst for that. I mean, he turned me on to bands like the Willow Biscuits. He turned me on to the Bad Brains. He turned me on to so many, um, so many Henry Rollins mm. and, and and a whole lot of other people. Bobby turned me on to because, like I said, the skateboard uh, culture is just a, 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 a just a wealth of uh, just good music, you know. And, uh, you know, I would even tell Bobby, I said, somebody, and I said, probably there already is, but I said, somebody should just put out a, a whole triple album, skateboard, call it skateboard culture, you know, <laughs> skateboard culture, because, and just have all these great songs on there, you know, from these bands who influenced the skateboard uh, culture, you know. And so uh, I would say, yeah, he was a big influence to that. Julian is another one. He has such great musical taste. Um, and uh, Julian brought me an album by this guy by, by the name of Shuggy Otis. Oh yeah, man! And and that's that's another. One. I love that album. And then I heard Strawberry Letter Twenty Three oh, yeah, on it, and I said, "This guy wrote this song, and he did this song, and it's it's like you know he it, this the um, Quincy Jones and the Johnson brothers they made this huge, but I like Shuggy's." Juggy's uh, version was is, is still it's my favorite now, and I've always liked that yeah. song. Yeah, so I, it's like Julian turned me on to that guy. I love infor, um, inspiration information. That's a great yeah. song. I, I love that. Yeah, oh, it's track. awesome. Yeah, the man. track is great. Yeah, 
but so, you know, I could thank you for, I could thank them for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. It's it's always great. You know, I, I remember when I was able to turn my dad onto some music and he then then it was a great way for him to like take me to shows when I couldn't drive yet and everything like that. So <laughs> that, was, that was fantastic. Oh, great, yeah. great way to bond too. But Oh it is. But Bobby yes. You know, thank you so much for coming on to Dad Rocks. It was such a pleasure to have you on here. The Beautiful. the documentary, it's one of my favorite documentaries, music documentaries. Um, I love the story. I love your music. Um, you know, it's, thank you. it's so great that you guys are still putting out stuff and that you're loving, you know, putting out what you're doing and getting all these songs that no one has heard before out into the world because they're great. I mean... It just shows yeah. you how talented you guys were that you have these songs yeah. from 50 years ago that are still, you know, very, very... Still rocking. Yeah, man. and they're, they're Still they're rocking. Still rocking. We're excited about some of the stuff that in the studio. Ryan's very excited about some of the songs that I, that he's uh, I presented to him from the Death Catalog, and he's really excited about it. And uh, so, you know, I just want to tell you, listeners, be, be on the lookout for our new single, Go up to Drag City Records. Um, anybody that wants to check out the Vermont Reggae Fest book, go, you can just go to www.vermontreggaefestpowerofmusic.com, vtreggaefestpowerofmusic.com, and uh, you can check that out there. Um, of course, our Facebook, our website, www.jesslamdetroit.com. And we just love to hear from any and everybody. We, we just love our fans. We love, you know, um, all the people who support the band because we can, we're grateful every single day. And uh, we absolutely love rock and roll and we still love rock and roll the same as we did when we were back in Detroit doing that great music. Yeah, man. It's great to be doing it. Well, thanks again for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode, and special thanks again to Bobby Hackney for coming on to the show. You can find out more about Death by going to deathfromdetroit.com, and you can follow them on Instagram at deathfromdetroit. All of their music can be found on all major streaming services, or you can go to dragcity.com slash artists slash death, where you can buy physical copies of their albums, including their latest split single with Rough Francis. If you want to learn more about Bobby's new book, you can go to vtreggaefestpowerofmusic.com. That's V-T-R-E-G-G-A-E-F-E-S-T-P-O-W-E-R-O-F-M-U-S-I-C.com. Again, his book is called Vermont Reggae Fest, The Power of Music. If you want to know more about Lamb's Bread, you can go to lambsbreadband.com. That's L-A-M-B-S-B-R-E-A-D-B-A-N-D.com. And of course, if you haven't already, you should watch the documentary, A Band Called Death. You'll have to rent or buy it online, but it is totally worth it. As I've said, it's one of my favorite music documentaries. If you enjoyed what you heard today, I would love for you to subscribe to the show and would really appreciate it if you left an honest review. Or, you know, just tell a friend or two about us. 
If you'd like to follow the show on social media, we can be found on Instagram, Threads, and the app formerly known as Twitter, all at Dad Rocks Pod. We're also on Facebook by searching up Dad Rocks Podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or any show ideas for us, or just want to give us a shout, you can email us at dadrockspod at gmail.com. If you want to check out the music you've heard on this podcast in full, we have a playlist of most of the music, which should be linked in the podcast description. I want to thank you again for listening today. I want to wish you a happy new year. And remember, dads, you rock. <laughs>